Let's turn to Romans chapter 12 for today. The title for today is going to be, A Living Sacrifice, Holy and Acceptable to God. Now for today I'm going to read the first couple of chapters of Romans chapter 12. Very important and profound verses in Scripture. Now, in order to understand these couple of verses here that begin Romans 12, we have to get the context. I don't believe it's an exaggeration to say that Romans chapter 12 is a gathering up and really a conclusion that we're supposed to draw from the prior 11 chapters. And you're going to see what I mean. Paul's gathering up all of the prior 11 chapters, and he is going to say to us in the first couple of verses here, because of this that you've read in the first 11 chapters, you need to do such and such. You need to see such and such. So these are important verses. They are pivotal in the epistle of Paul to the Romans, and really pivotal in the life of the believer. Now, just in order to get a little bit of an idea as to how the first couple of verses here of chapter 12 do gather up all the truth that's revealed in the previous 11 chapters, I just want to start reading in chapter 11, verse 33, where Paul begins to break out into worshipfulness toward the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, having said all that he said up to this point. Verse 33 there in chapter 11 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and then it shall need to be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And again, I think that amen closes out 11 chapters of incredible revelation. It gathers all of it up. Now, you read that, you read the amen, and you start in on chapter 12. And of course, most of us that know anything about the scholarship behind the Bible know that in the New Testament Greek, in the original manuscripts, there are no chapter divisions. And so if you just read it like that, as a continuing letter, you read that Paul said, Amen. To God are all things. Amen. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. See, there's the therefore. Therefore always points back to points and comments that have been made up to this point. And so these first couple of verses are based on the first 11 chapters. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, that's the Greek, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, the act of which is holy and acceptable unto God. This is your reasonable service. 
Now, I'm going to read more than that for today, but I want to stop right there. Let's back up and let's dissect this a little bit and see what Paul is getting at here. First of all, Paul is saying or beseeching us because of the mercies of God that we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Notice the contrast between that and what a lot of believers might think or even say. A lot of believers might think and say that when God gives a command like this, that he is beseeching us not because of his mercy, but because of his wrath. In other words, a lot of people obey God, not because they necessarily believe God, and not necessarily because they love God. A lot of people don't even obey God sometimes because they even want to do good. I mean, I'm it's sorry to say that, but you can say that about a lot of folks that even call themselves by the name of Christ. The motives for obeying God, and certainly the motive for getting on the altar, as is described here, are all over the map, and many times our motives are not godly and are not good. A lot of people read verses like this, and instead of taking the plea here to be because of the mercies of God, take it to be a threat of punishment. In other words, you better get on this altar and offer yourself to God or else. There are a lot of professing Christians that have a gospel like that. A lot of professing Christians have a gospel that is really a threat of punishment. Believe in Jesus or else. How many understand that if you are believing Jesus simply because you're not afraid, simply because you're afraid not to? You believe him out of fear? How many understand that that kind of faith is very questionable? I'm not sure there can be a whole lot of real faith in that. Because you're not believing according to the truth in that case. And you're certainly not believing of the Spirit of God. God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You believe or you obey God out of being afraid of him, and you're not seeing the truth, and therefore you're not believing the truth. And that would explain quite a bit to some people as to why what God says will happen if you believe doesn't happen for them. God Almighty wants us to know him and wants us to believe and obey him because we know him. And he's promised to guide us into all truth. You can't go around being motivated by being afraid of God, being afraid he's going to hit you over the head with a hammer if you disobey. That's not going to get you far. It's ingenuous. And really, if you think about it, obedience out of fear is not love unto God or faith unto God. Obedience that's out of fear it's simply obedience that's self-centered. It's to save your own skin, or so you think. That's why when a lot of folks read a verse like uh, Romans 12.1, Romans 12.2, which speaks of picking up your cross daily, and we'll see that in a minute, but we read these verses that tell us that we have to unconditionally give ourselves to Jesus Christ. A lot of people... It's almost as if when 
they read something like that, they hold a funeral for themselves and grieve and cry, oh, dear God, I have to die. How horrible that's going to be. And, you know, woe is me. I have to suffer. Woe is me that I have done everything that I can do and God still expects me to die and uh, give my life to him. And even though they would probably not even realize this, if we're grieving over the fact that our old man in Adam has to die, then how many understand that's a disguised way of wanting to save ourselves? That's a disguised way of admitting that we really don't think we're all that bad in ourselves. No, if we see the truth of God, if we allow God to do whatever it takes to show us the truth, then we are going to rejoice to get on the altar, rejoice to embrace the cross. We're going to give God thanks. We're actually going to pray to God, Lord, do whatever it takes to set me free. And so... Here we have another appeal of God, and it's by the mercy of God. This is because of God's mercy that we can be delivered from this old man in Adam, that we can be delivered from ourselves. The cross is God's love, and yeah, we're going to suffer if we pick up the cross. We're going to suffer if we walk and follow Jesus Christ, but it's God's mercy and his love that we do. And we need to see that. This verse, Romans 12.1, is really expressive of the exact same truth that I so often refer to that we find in Matthew chapter 16. And I want to read that here uh, in conjunction with this Romans 12.1 and 2. Matthew chapter 16 starting in verse 21. You'll remember that in this chapter is the event where Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they confessed that he was Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and Jesus said that the Father had revealed that to them. Now, it was on the basis of this revelation. In other words, they had received a revelation that now made them ready to receive more. That's why it says in verse 21 in Matthew 16, from that time forth, Jesus began to show them. From what time forth? From the time they received the revelation of who he was. They were now ready to have revealed to them more truth. How many understand that the same thing is the case for us? That there are certain things that God can't reveal to you and I unless there is a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ in which to receive it. God's not going to go around handing out information to people. And there are plenty of people that think that is what he does. You know, the Lord spoke this to me, the Lord spoke that to me. He told me to do this, not do that. And it goes on and on, and then you find out that a lot of it is not really the truth. And so, God's not so much interested in giving us information. He'll give it to us if we need it. But God wants to give us revelation and that of his son. And if we begin to know Jesus and begin to understand the Lord and learn Christ, 
then God can reveal other related things to us because we're going to be able to spiritually discern what he means in the proper context. If you and I think that Jesus Christ is a mean-spirited tyrant, what good is it going to do for God to reveal things that are related to that? We're not going to interpret those things clearly. No, all discernment in the Christian life is based upon and really an outcome of knowing Jesus Christ. Didn't he say, I am the truth, I am the light? Well, how could we expect to discern anything? How could we expect to discern anything at all having to do with God that is even remotely related to Jesus Christ if we don't know the one of which God speaks? And that's a principle that you can take to the bank every time. That everything that God reveals is intended in some way to be out from and related to Jesus Christ. Because he's the truth. Wouldn't all truth be related to him and out from him? And so we've got to know him. And we've got to know him in spirit and in truth. And we have a little bit of an example of that here. They received from the Father a revelation of Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus then, or Matthew then, says, From that time, on the basis of that revelation, Jesus began to show unto the disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now, can we see that none of that had no possibility of making any sense to them at all, unless they first understood that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Now, they ended up not understanding it anyway and rejecting it because they had other interests that we'll talk about here in a second. But because they had just received a revelation of Christ, it was possible for them to understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus doesn't talk just to hear the sound of his voice. They could have understood. They had understood a couple minutes before that he was the Messiah. But this part that was based on that, well, this would have, this would have really bowled them over. They weren't expecting this kind of Messiah. And so Jesus tells them, I've got to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be raised. Well, Peter then took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, be, far, be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be unto you. Now, why did he say that? It was not because Jesus was his friend and he didn't want to see him get hurt, although I'm sure there was some of that in there. Peter wasn't callous. Peter did love Jesus to a certain degree at that point. No, the reason they didn't want to hear this was because they expected Jesus to set up the kingdom in Jerusalem reign and rule as the physical, material Messiah over Israel. And of course, they believed, based on a misunderstanding of his parables, that they were going to be right at his side. And so they were expecting freedom from Rome, reigning and ruling alongside of the Messiah in Jerusalem, which is what every Jew of that day wanted and prayed for. And they believed that when they said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that that is ultimately where that would lead. And so, 
Peter, in essence, is saying to Jesus, we don't want a Messiah. We don't want a Christ. We might even paraphrase a little bit. Peter was saying, we don't want a Christianity where the only way to life is through death. We don't want a Christianity with the cross. We don't want a Christianity that's the outcome of the death of the entire old creation in Adam and the resurrection unto new life in a new creation. Now, Peter wouldn't have known enough to say that, but I'm trying to make a point here because we are seeing here two different kingdoms and two different Christs. We are seeing on the one hand the kingdom of God and the Christ that God sent that had to die for the sin of the world and in doing so take down into death everything that man had become as a creature in Adam. All of that had to be set aside. All of what man was in Adam and all of the kingdoms of this earth had to be set aside as well in him. And the only thing God would be interested in from that point was a new creation. That's one kingdom. The other kingdom, to many people, may look the same. But it's not Christ enthroned and Adam dead. This other kingdom is Adam alive. Because, you see, Christianity without the cross is Adam on the throne, isn't it? Because the cross is how Adam died. So, people right from the beginning didn't want a Christianity that necessitated a dead and then risen Christ. No, they wanted a Christianity that would basically enthrone all that man is. And this is so serious that when Peter promoted this to Jesus, Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. For you are an offense to me. For you seek and desire not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And so we're being told right here that any Christianity, any form of it, without the necessity, yes, of the cross of Christ, but any Christianity without the necessity of the personal cross, which Jesus is going to mention in a minute, any form of Christianity without that is, in fact, the gospel of Satan. Can we see that? Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you want a kingdom and a Christ and a Christianity without the cross. Get behind me, Satan. Because this desire is not for the things of God and the glory of God and the interests of God. But this desire is that which is of man. Sure, man enthroned, man made great. The gospel of self-esteem, the gospel of man's worth to God rather than the gospel of God's worth to man. And you see that today in many shapes and sizes everywhere. Some of it is extremely subtle. Some of it is incredibly blatant. But this is what Satan has pushed right from the beginning. And it is going to be the very essence of the spirit of Antichrist that not only governs the world toward the end, 
but also governs many who profess Christ. This is going to be what people apostatize to. It's going to be some form of Christianity without the cross, which is not Christianity, it's the gospel of Satan. The cross will crucify everything about Adam, everything that is contrary to God in man. It'll set it all aside, and it'll expose man as being completely empty without any value whatsoever. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, don't you know that unless Christ is in you, you are reprobate? Reprobate in the Greek means good for nothing, empty, barren. Now, there are some people that would be offended by that. How dare you say that man is without value? I didn't say it, God did. And like I said before, if we want to see the truth, we're going to see it. And we're going to say it. And we're going to rejoice in it. Because the other side of the story is we are nothing, but he is everything. And God has given us all things freely in his son. And so we have two gospels here. Two lines of Christianity. One is evil. One is the truth. And right from the beginning, Satan has tried to have a crossless Christianity. He tried to get Jesus not to go to the cross. And he tried to even use Peter and the disciples to try to play on Jesus along that line and unto that end. So get behind me, Satan. How many understand that it's so easy to read through a scripture like this and not grasp the significance this is serious business, and this is where the rubber meets the road in our lives. Now, Jesus had just told them about the fact that he had to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and be raised again. Just said that to him, and then Peter rebuked him. But now, in verse 24 and 25, he says, not only do I have to go to Jerusalem and suffer, and be crucified. But I've got news for you. By the mercies of God, and as a way of God setting you free, you've got to carry your cross as well. How many understand that it is because Jesus died on the cross and bore the Adam race on the cross? It is because of that that we can die in him and that the power of his cross can set us free from all that we are in Adam. And I recognize that if we're in Christ, that has happened as a fact all at once. But practically speaking, and from an experiential standpoint, what has happened needs to be worked out in experience, which is what Jesus is going to say here. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, after Peter tried to get him to walk away from the cross. He said, if any man will come after me. Now, look at that. That's conditional, isn't it? Does it sound like you can come after Jesus unless you do what he says here? It says, if anyone would come after me. You want to follow Jesus? This is how you follow him. There isn't any other way. If we're not doing this, we're not coming after him. Period. And we need to get that settled.
Again, a crossless Christianity. A preacher that'll tell you you don't have to suffer if you're a Christian. Somebody that thinks that Christianity is a big party. Your best life now. God wants to make you rich. That Jesus died to bring out the greatness of man. That the greatest source of freedom is that you discover your true identity. All of those horrible, ridiculous heresies. Anybody that preaches that is not following Jesus and not teaching you how to follow. No, they're teaching the gospel of Satan. Jesus said here, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean to give up candy for Lent? Does it mean to figure out all kinds of ways I can make myself miserable and do it? No, not at all. People have tried that kind of thing. If you've ever read up on the Middle Ages, they tried to prove to God their contrition by getting one of these cat of nine tails and, and hitting themselves over the back with them till they were bleeding. And they thought that that was going to atone for their sins somehow. Now, what Jesus is talking about here when he says, let him deny himself, it's really exactly what he means. I don't think we think deeply enough about these words. To deny yourself means that you lose yourself, which is exactly what he's going to say here. In other words, you deny your right to yourself. You deny your self-ownership. You no longer, in other words, belong to yourself, but you belong to God, and that more and more becomes worked out and lived out in your life. In other words, you deny yourself by putting yourself out of the picture. As far as being in charge, as, as far as living on the basis of yourself. There are a lot of words in the Bible that I think we have redefined through tradition, through unbelief, through ignorance. And I think one of the terms that we've misdefined is the term flesh. Another term we've misdefined is the word lust. We have that phrase, lusts of the flesh. People think that means something that's immoral, sexually or otherwise. And really, it could be that, but it, it encompasses a whole lot more. The flesh is the self-principle. To walk according to flesh means you walk according to you, to yourself. In other words, you walk according to how you think, what you want, how your soul operates, your desires, your impulses, the natural mind, I just feel this way or whatever. You know how people do. You know how we do. That's what it means to walk according to the flesh. And of course, it can get into acts of sin, inward and outward. But if you walk according to the flesh, you don't necessarily have to be out sinning. One of the most deceptive ways to walk according to the flesh, to walk according to self, is to walk under the delusion of your own righteousness. To walk in false religion that satisfies something in you, a lust for righteousness, and so forth. There are people that you would swear wouldn't chew gum on Sunday, they're so holy. And yet all of it is a walk in religious flesh. And 
Jesus says, all that has to be gone. There can be nothing that you walk in as far as God's will that is about your interests, that are about you calling the shots. Now, I would dare say that even though all of these words are true, that are being written here and that I'm speaking, it does take a lifetime to learn what, it, what this means. Because it is quite overwhelming. It is immense. Part of what it means to deny yourself and to lose your life to Jesus Christ is really to say to him, Lord, do whatever it takes to bring me into an understanding of this. Lord, in fact, do whatever it takes to bring me into the reality of losing myself to Jesus Christ. You make that commitment. Lord, do whatever it takes. You make that commitment in faith because you really want him to. You are losing your life to him. That's the commitment to do so. Now, it's all going to be worked out. You'll notice that there's a carrying of a cross here. You can get on the altar, as we read in Romans 12.1, but then after that, there are practicalities to live out from the altar. But if you want to know a place to start, it isn't about you figuring things out, you developing a religious system. It isn't about trying to figure out how to lose yourself. People have those issues. I used to have them too. What it is about is coming to the place where you see that the only thing you can do and the only thing God ever tells you to do is to give yourself to him no matter what it takes. You do that and you're on the right track. That's something God can build on. You don't do that, you're not going to get anywhere. And of course, to tell God, Lord, do whatever it takes to bring me into the reality of this, that is a commitment to lose your life, and it is exactly where God's going to bring each and every one of us if we want to walk in the truth. What Jesus is talking about here is where God's going to bring you if you really want to walk with him. He says, if any man would come after me, what do we think God's going to lead us to some other place, to some other realization? to some other point? No. He wants us to come after Jesus and to know and experience Jesus. So, Matthew 16, 24, and 25, Romans 12, 1 and 2, those are descriptions of where God Almighty is going to bring every one of us every time. There are no exceptions. It is where he's going to bring us. And I might as well just say he's going to bring us to the cross because that's what it's talking about. So if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him ask God to do whatever it takes under the work of the cross to set him free from self, but under Christ. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so there is a continual carrying of the cross. As Paul says, always bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4. If you are baptized into Christ, you are baptized into his death. You are, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20, crucified with him. 
Jesus did die for us. Nothing else is possible unless that happened. But because he died for us, we now are able to be crucified with him. We are now able to pick up a cross so that we can have done in us a work whereby more and more of the life of Jesus can be released. We have all of Christ in us that we're ever going to have. But how many know there's a lot of flesh clogging up the works? So we've got to bear about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus all the time so that the life also of Jesus may be made manifest, as Paul again says in 2 Corinthians 4. This isn't salvation all over again. This is what happens if you're saved. It's the outworking of it. It's what happens if you're baptized into Christ. You're in fellowship with him, being made conformed to his death, that you may have Christ manifested in and through you. And so he says in verse 24, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And in verse 25, for whosoever would save his life, and that is speaking of delivering your life unto yourself. For whosoever will save his life or own his life for himself is going to end up losing it because to save your life for yourself is sin. It's the sin going all the way back to the garden. You want to do that, God will give you your life and you'll lose everything because he's giving you a dead body in that case. You want to save that life, you're going to have a dead body in the end. But he says, whosoever would lose his life for my sake shall find true life in me is really the story behind these words. And so this is Christianity. Christianity is not a religion where God helps us save our life for ourselves. Isn't that so much, though, what is preached on Christian TV and by various false teachers in churches and the like? We are naturally inclined to want to save ourselves for ourselves, to want to own ourselves. We're naturally inclined to do that. And We've developed a Christianity whereby we are told how to get God to help us save our lives. That's, that's not only heresy, it's the gospel of Satan. That's Christianity without the cross. We see that right here. No, Jesus said, you've got to put all that aside, give all that up. God's only told or given one set of instructions as to what to do with the old life in Adam. He said, lose it. It's under the cross. It died in Christ. Now you've got to realize that. And he says, whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. Now notice those words, for my sake. It's not going to do us any good to die or be martyred for false religion. It's not going to do us any good to try to determine the scene of our own martyrdom for God. No, God just says, give yourself to me. Ask me to do whatever it takes. God knows how to crucify. He just says, give yourself to me. Let me pound the nails. Let me do whatever it takes. Make that commitment and then follow him when he takes you up on that commitment. And you will come into the truth of God in Jesus Christ. So that's all he says to do. Lose yourself to him. Now you may have to do that a thousand times a day. And it isn't like 
you never did it before or it didn't matter that you did it before. If you've got to do it a thousand times a day, all that is is a renewal of commitment. All that is is a way of heading in the right direction. Now, all of that gathered up brings us right back to Romans chapter 12. And you can see that Matthew 16 there where we read is talking about exactly the same truth. I beseech you therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God. In other words, I beseech you therefore, brethren, because of this incredible life in the Son that you will discover and experience if you pick up your cross, if you get on this altar. How many understand that in the Bible, the altar, certainly in the Old Testament and a few places in the New, the altar is all always a type and a shadow, a representation of the cross of Jesus Christ. Sure, the altar is that which is upon which the sacrifice is made. And the type and shadow holds all the way through Scripture. And so he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, this is God's mercy to provide you with deliverance through the cross. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, how many see again that there is a commitment here and a choice to be made? He's telling us that we have to do this. We have to pick up the cross. God lays it before us. We have to pick it up. We have to say to God, Lord, do whatever it takes. And we have to follow through on that when God does do whatever it takes. We have that choice. It's entirely possible to call yourself a Christian, but then when God brings some form or outworking of the cross, to just step around it. And if you do that, you'll, you'll suffer loss temporarily, and God will bring it back and give you another chance. And if you persist, you may suffer some sort of eternal forfeiting of what God had for you as far as inheritance and so forth. You can lose out. And he says here that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say that you, you pound the nails and crucify yourself. You can't. I, think it was, I forget who it was that said that it's impossible for a believer to crucify himself because you always need one hand free to pound the nails. And the thought behind that is that we are so self-centered that if it was up to us to crucify ourselves, we would salvage something out of that for ourselves. There's lots of people, for example, who go around bragging how much they suffer. There's people that get a lot of pride and self-righteousness out of the fact that they think that they're carrying their cross. Again, woe is me, how much I've suffered for God, and all that kind of stuff. That, that, that isn't true death in Christ. That isn't losing your life or getting on the altar. That's just using those, those concepts and, and molding it into another form of self-righteousness. No. 
You've got to present your body as a living sacrifice. That's nothing more than telling God to do whatever it takes under the work of the cross. In other words, here I am, Lord. I'm presenting myself to you as a sacrifice that you may do whatever you desire in me to get what you want. How many understand that's not a bad thing? If we're still holding on to what we think we want to be as a Christian, we haven't seen it yet. We can't be anything until we come to this. And then it's not us, it's him. Again, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. How many understand that what we're talking about here is utterly and completely contrary to human thinking. It's certainly completely contrary to human religious thinking, to natural Christian thinking. It's not possible to achieve this kind of mind and understanding through human effort. The only way in which you and I can come into the reality of these things is to give yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Again, the key to everything is to give yourself to God. Now, you can say that in a minute, and you should. Make that commitment to God, absolutely. But then he's going to bring circumstances whereby you will have the opportunity to make a choice to back up your commitment to let God do whatever it takes. And so, it's a lifelong thing. Now, Let's uh, read some more of this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy. In fact, it actually says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, the act of which is holy and acceptable unto God. In other words, doing that, giving yourself to God and asking him to do whatever it takes is a choice of faith that is holy and is acceptable unto God. Now this makes sense if we understand what the word holy means in the New Testament Greek. In the New Testament Greek, the word holy, which is hagiai, means to be set apart for God's use. To use more modern speech, it just means to belong to God. To belong to God for whatever he wants. That's what it means to be holy. Interesting that the most common term in the New Testament used for a Christian is the word saint. Well, saint comes from the same root word, holy. It's holy is hagios, I guess, and the, and the word saint is hagii. And so it's the same word. The saints are the holy ones. And so by definition and very identity, Christians or saints are people that belong to Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that true? You are not your own. You're bought with a price, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. If you're baptized into Christ, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You may still think you do, but everything God does is going to be contrary to that thinking. No. If you present your body as a living sacrifice, your life, that act of faith is a holy act because you are giving yourself to the one to whom you belong. Isn't that truth? Isn't that obeying the truth? If you belong to God and you give yourself to him, 
you're simply obeying the truth. You're not doing something extra. Again, we think these are extra things people do that are really holy. No, this is business as usual for a son or daughter of God. Present your body as a living sacrifice, the act of which is holy and acceptable unto God. And doing so is your reasonable service. Now, this is really an interesting statement because that word reasonable in the New Testament Greek means a well-reasoned-out choice, an intelligent choice. And all that Paul is saying here isn't that, well, you figure this out with your brain. That's not it. He is saying that if you see the truth of Jesus Christ, if you see who he is, what he has done for you, and what Christianity is, Christ in you, the hope of glory, if you see that you belong to God, if you see that we're talking here about the greatest gift and experience possible, that the Son of God would make us one with himself. If we see all of that and embrace it, Paul is simply saying, well, the only reasonable thing you would do is give yourself to him. Right? If you see God and know Jesus Christ, you're going to want to give yourself to him. Now, if you don't want to give yourself to him, then you haven't seen him. At least you need to see him more. I'm thinking now of the book of Revelation. So many times in the book of Revelation, we have these episodes where Jesus or the Father are there, and all of these people and all these angels fall down and worship. They, they can't even help themselves. They're just overcome with his greatness and glory. Do we think that they fall down and worship him because they're scared to death not to? Do we think that God's standing there with a big club threatening to hit them over the head with it if they don't fall down? You better worship me or else. No. They fall down and worship God because of his greatness. They can't even hardly help themselves. And so this is a similar thought. Once we see the truth that we're nothing, that we're not only nothing, but we are subject to Satan, the corruption of the flesh, and every single thing that speaks of darkness, as long as we operate in and out from Adam. We see that, and then alongside of that, we see the greatness of Jesus Christ and all that God is in him. We see those things, then our reasonable service is going to be that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. would be stupid not to would be contrary to the truth and destroying ourselves not to. Paul's appealing simply to common sense in one sense of the word here. In other words, Christ died for you. Why are you standing outside of that? God has only good for you. Why are you withholding yourself from him? Haven't you yet learned the absolute futility of living from out of yourself? No, this is your reasonable service to get on the altar, to lose your life, to tell God to do whatever it takes. It would be spiritually stupid not to, but it's spiritually faithful and spiritually intelligent, if I dare, dare say it that way, to do so. Now, let's go on here. Verse 2. 
and be not conformed, which the word means externally, to this world, but be you transformed, which is an internal transforming, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so first we have an exhortation against conforming ourselves to this world and the spirit of the world. And the word used here speaks more of the external, but we could include internal. We don't want to internally conform ourselves to this world, and other scriptures speak to that. Now, what does it mean to do that, to be conformed to this world? Well, it certainly means to act like the world, to operate like the world, to dress like the world, to operate in business the way the world works. How many understand that a lot of churches are nothing more than cost centers and corporations that worry more about the bottom line than anything? Believe me, I've been in many churches. I've been pastor of a church. I've seen the behind the scenes politicking and schemes to raise money. Watch Christian television. All of it's money raising, isn't it? You can't watch a program on there without seeing an appeal to mo for money. And that's all nothing but being conformed to this world because it's not faith in God. Do we really believe that God will look after his own business? Do we really believe that if God wanted a church to have money that he would withhold that? Now, the church has to be faithful to him, of course, which is what he's getting at here. We have to understand that if we put Christ first, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if we seek first the interests of God in our personal life and in our church, God's going to take care of the money. But we don't believe that. That's why tithing is preached. It's nice to have guaranteed 10%, isn't it? Or so you think. But don't be conformed to this world. Don't have the world's attitude. Don't have the world's mindset. Don't operate like the world operates. I think it's about a five-year lag, but if the world does something five years later, the church is doing it. It just happens because we don't know Christ. But it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be internally transformed. But how? By the renewing of your mind. And here we have a great truth. There's only one way that our minds can be renewed. Now, that's not by going through a seven or ten step program. That's not by going to Christian counseling for psychological problems. That's not by going to classes or getting a degree in theology. The only way to have your mind renewed, and it's, it's speaking of a renewal according to the truth, of course, is through an inward realization of the truth himself, Jesus Christ. If you and I come in to an inward realization of Jesus Christ and begin to know him, if we do that, our minds will be renewed through that knowledge of him. We will think differently, but we will see differently. As I said before, all discernment in the Christian life is a byproduct of knowing Jesus Christ. Now, if your mind is renewed 
by knowing Jesus Christ, then the rest of you is going to be gradually transformed in accordance with that. If God reveals Christ in you, you are going to not only begin to see the truth as God sees it, you're going to also see the error. You're going to begin to see what God sees and how he sees it. And you're going to begin not only to learn Christ, you're going to unlearn error. Now that ultimately is going to affect what? It's going to affect your attitude. It's going to affect your conduct. But it all starts from Christ within. See, what the Christian church has done for the last 2,000 years has been to develop religious systems and laws to follow, think, thinking that if we jump through those religious hoops and alter our conduct and religious practices in a certain way, we've been told, well, that is what it means to be conformed to Christ. And the whole thing generates from out of natural religious man in an attempt to work our way into Christ. To work our way into looking like Jesus, as some people say. And we can accomplish that by laws, rules, counseling, and, and that sort of thing. The exact opposite is how it really must happen. We have to be joined to the Lord and made one spirit with him. And then... Slowly but surely, as we present our bodies a living sacrifice, as we carry the cross, we will come into an inward realization. Paul called this inward realization having Christ formed in you, Galatians 4.19. The word there, formed, means to inwardly realize. So if Christ is in you, God's going to be about the business of unfolding him to you and revealing him all the more. And you will come into an inward realization of Christ. As that happens, your mind, as you know Christ, your mind will be renewed. And then that will start to affect everything. So all things are out from Christ. And then from the inward to the outward flow. And transform us in accordance with the life in us. It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. God wants to manifest Christ through us. Well, he's not going to do that aside from us. If he's going to manifest Christ through us, something has to happen in us. And this is what does happen. Now notice the conclusion here of verse 2. It's really just what I said. Be not conformed to this world, but... Be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, in order that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So how do you come to know the will of God for your life? You come to know the will of God for your life by first an inward realization and discovery of the person of Christ who is in you. And then, as that renews your mind, part of what's going to come with that renewal is that you're going to have more of his mind. And how many know that the mind of Christ knows what the will of God is? Right? See, we think that the way that we know the will of God is if God just tells us. How many times in our lives 
we get into trials and tribulations and get into hysterics and we say, God, if you would just tell me, I would do it. And we think that the will of God is a piece of information that we need to receive from God. I understand how that works. I did it for years. How many understand that usually when you do that, God is silent? And then you get all upset and don't understand why he's silent. God is saying to us, my will begins with a realization of a purpose, of a person. I want you to get on the altar, to pick up the cross, present your body, lose your life, and ask me to do whatever it takes to get my full will in your life. God would say that to us. I want you to ask me to do whatever it takes to bring you into a realization of Christ. And as you do come into a realization of my son, God would say, that's going to renew your mind. And you're going to come to know what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. The Greek actually reads here, in order that you may prove what is the will of God and what is good. And so this is how you come to know the will of God. Now, if we needed to know something on the spot, in an emergency or something, God's more than capable of letting us know that. He's very faithful. But in principle, this is how we know the will of God. We come to know the person of Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of the will of God. Isn't he called the Word of God? Isn't the Word of God a matter of God speaking his will? I mean, this truth is everywhere in Scripture. And it needs to be understood. It needs to be taught. And so here we have Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a call to the cross, to pick up your cross daily, to present your body as a living sacrifice. It's a beseeching by the mercies that we might do this. And Paul says any reasonable person would do it if they really knew the truth. And he's saying that is the outcome of getting on that altar as a living sacrifice. As an outcome of not being conformed to this world, you will be transformed through an inward realization of Jesus Christ that will renew your mind. And when that happens, as your mind is transformed, you will more and more know and really prove what is the good and acceptable perfect will of God. How many understand that it should not be surprising that all of these things come back once again to Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory? knowing him. God wants to take a people and he wants us he wants to set us free from our own interests, from our own selves. And he wants to so reveal his son in us that we'll be here simply for him. How many understand we're not going to be deprived if that's the case? We're going to find true life. And if we will begin to know Jesus Christ who is in us, alongside of that and along with that, and really as the outcome of that, we are going to prove what is the will of God and what is good. We're going to know it, and it's going to be proven in life. That's the outcome of presenting yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God.